Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. This week's episode features a couple of twists on our usual format. First of all, we have not one, but two guests this week. We'll be joined by Professor David Magnus and Dr. Alyssa Burgard, both from Stanford University. And second, Professor Ian Savro will be co-hosting this week's conversation with our guest from last week, Dr. Lauren Barron, who will be filling in for our usual co-host, Dr. Tita de Klerk. What you're about to hear is an edited recording of a live online event that took place on the 30th of June, 2021. You'll hear Ian and Lauren talking with David and Alyssa about the role of philosophy and bioethics in medicine, with a particular focus on the theoretical and practical delivery of ethics into clinical services. That's all I need to say. I'll pass you over to Ian, Lauren, David and Alyssa. We're really lucky today to be talking around ethics and understanding the issues of ethics in the humanities, and it's a perfect day uh, to talk about this. We have co-hosting this Lauren Barron. Uh, Dr. Lauren Barron runs the first, one of the first medical humanities courses that was ever set up for undergraduates in the States at uh, Baylor University, Waco, and is a Baker chair. And to enjoy the conversation with us today, we have Dr. Alyssa Burkhart, a paediatric anesthesiologist, ethicist, and she says musician, uh, who helps deliver ethical consults, leads ethical services, and helps deliver innovative services for poorly children undergoing uh, anaesthetics in, in her hospital. Um, and then also uh, David Magnus, who's the Thomas A. Raffin Professor of Medicine and Bioethics and Professor of Paediatric Medicine and and bioengineering, uh, who's director of the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics and associate dean of research. So a huge pleasure to have you both. Um, David, you've been hugely influential on our own research practice in terms of setting up ethics committees and thinking about how to deliver our care. Alyssa, likewise, I use some of the words that you and I have talked about in the consults that I do with my own patients. And thank you both for the influence that you've had on my career. I'm just going to start by asking you both just to tell us a little bit about your connection to our series and this, this world of the humanities and the ethics and, and how you come to join us here. And, and I'll start with you, Alyssa, if I may. Sure. Ian, thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to have this conversation with you and Lauren. Many physicians come to ethics after becoming physicians. They become physicians and then they become ethicists. And I've been very fortunate that I was able to study ethics as an undergraduate student at the University of Judaism and really came to medicine second. And so that's been a really incredible experience for me. At this point, I've, I've been studying ethics and participating in ethics, I, I, it's amazing to say it, but 20 years. And so it's a deeply seated part of who I am and a deep part of, of my daily life, both in my clinical practice as well as in my work as an ethicist and, and something that I hold very dear. Thank you. And David? I started off as a philosopher, uh, so I, I have a PhD in philosophy, and I was always interested in both ethics and also uh, history and philosophy of science, and particular biology. So it's probably not that surprising that I found a way of combining both of those interests to start to get interested in bioethics over time. Um, I also had a third interest in uh, when I was a graduate student that persisted in a lot of my undergraduate teaching, because I started off not based in medicine, but based at liberal arts colleges. And I taught philosophy of language and linguistics in addition to history and philosophy of biology and ethics. So those are all areas that I, I was working on. Um, so in a way for me, the the humanities was a was built in for me pretty early on and baked into the kind of work that I do and the kind of things that I'm interested in. Um, it was the medicine that came later for me. And it was a big jump. I took a leave of absence from liberal arts college where I was uh, an endowed professor when I first went. I was at University of Pennsylvania before coming to Stanford. And I wanted to see if I would like it being based in a medical school or if I would hate it and go uh, screaming back. And I've never, never really looked back, but I've been, you know, now it's been almost a quarter of a century that I've been really grounded in medical centers, doing clinical ethics at the hospital, attending weekly rounds, teaching medical students, as well as undergrads and doing research in these kinds of settings. But so I, I'm sort of the opposite story from most of the people in, like Liz, I started with the ethics, but I didn't go to the medical route. I stayed, I sort of stayed in the ethics and, and humanities route. I'll be dying to hear how it feels to be a humanities scholar, um, having such a major leadership role in a medical community. But I mean, for you, for you both, how does this relationship to humanities and ethics work for you both, 
does does your understanding of ethics come out of your out of the humanities work? What's the relationship like between those two? I'll start. For me, it's a, that's actually a very complicated question, um, and I think there's actually a couple of different possible answers. So one part of it is that for me and what I bring to the table when it comes to ethics, which is a fundamentally interdisciplinary area, is for me it's really grounded in philosophy in different ways. And so, you know, my knowledge of philosophy informs how I think about ethics. And so I usually start by thinking in terms of ethical theories or theories of justice. And so when I'm dealing with issues, when people are talking about issues of equity or, or other kinds of ethical issues that arise in a hospital setting, for me, there's all the scaffolding behind it that comes from philosophy and even from classic text. So for me, Aristotle is always going to be a touchstone for almost everything I think and do. And also there are some, you know, American pragmatist traditions, so Dewey and James. But anyway, so for me, all of those things are are always present and always with me when I'm thinking about those issues. But then the other way in which it's played out as I'm dealing with sort of more concrete issues of research and the clinical ethics I do, I've been really enjoying bringing my earlier work in philosophy of language and linguistics into the, something that's fundamentally important to ethics, which has to do with the way in which people communicate with each other. And I think just being very attentive to language in a way that other people's, well, I, I, there are a lot of examples that gave rise to research projects, but I'll give you an example that did not, but it's a kind of thing that nobody else would have done. When I was in, when I first started doing rounds in the CV ICU, you know, cardiovascular ICU, I couldn't help but notice in a way that nobody else who went to both did that in the medical ICU and the surgical ICUs, whenever somebody's liver doesn't work, they have liver failure. But in the CV ICU, when somebody's liver doesn't work, they have a liver dysfunction. And, uh, uh, it didn't wind up mattering that much. I didn't do much with it, but little things like that, where I'm just very, I you know I'm sitting there in some ways as a foot, as an insider and an outsider in the perspective that I bring to it. And especially attentive to the kind of language that people are using, as well as some of the social dynamics. That's just not part of the way in which people who are fully, you know, natives will necessarily think about it. Oh, that's so powerful. Alyssa, for you, how does that play out? Before I went to um, did my undergraduate studies in ethics, I was actually a professional actress for a period of time. And so I think that I think very deeply about communication, not only verbal communication, but also nonverbal communication and and what is the presence that we bring to a patient encounter. And I would say that that those are aspects of of my life that have continued to inform my training and my practice, even though I have no, interest anymore in in being a professional actor. It's something that I've learned so much from that. And in terms of humanities, I feel like in medicine, it's so easy for us to become incredibly insular. And because of the sort of social hierarchy within medicine, it's not atypical for physicians to think that they not only do know it all, but must know it all and are not allowed to reach out into other specialties necessarily and outside of medicine to say, hey, you know, what can we learn from literature about the way that we communicate? What can we learn from the experience of people who've been patients who have demonstrated those, whether it's through music or art or theater, and just even the act of listening, which really gets to David's points about communication. I think that we have so much that we can continue to gather through our practice as clinicians from the world beyond medicine that are deeply meaningful and important. I'm struck by how frequently people are confused by the idea of humanities and medicine. And, you know, Pellegrino said that uh, medicine is the most humane of the sciences and the most scientific of the humanities. And I'm just struck by how often people think it's all about science, even 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 those of those who are going into the medical profession. So so my question is, what what do you think it's going to take in our culture to have an appreciation of what the humanities can bring to medicine? Vulnerability. If we are not willing to accept that we do not know everything through through science right now at this moment, it will hamper our ability to be creative in assessing what are the questions we should be asking? How should we be assessing them? And truly, I think that that's, that's at the heart of research. It's at the heart of being a lifelong learner. And, and it requires vulnerability to be willing to explore those things. And I think that there's really this dynamic of, you know, what's real science and 
within medicine, there's very much, I think, still negative ideas around things that are called soft sciences, you know, anthropology, social science, communications, ethics. You know, I think that many times people don't realize what we can gain from those. And because of that, this desire to be, to know everything, I think it really hampers our ability to continue to grow in that way. So I would say vulnerability. Yeah, I, I, I'm worried that it's really deeply ingrained in the culture and that what is valorized in medicine is really very technological in focus. So I remember having an ethics consult once where we had a patient who had a very large tumor in an area that was incompatible with life. And the intending oncologist acknowledged that this patient was dying in the ICU and was never going to survive when you took everything into account. He couldn't attend the family meetings and kept sending a fellow. And the fellows kept wanting to focus on wanting to do a biopsy to find out more about the cell receptors and to see whether they might be able to do something that would impact the tumor, even if it had nothing to do with the clinical outcome at all. And it derailed uh, one conversation. We wanted to make sure it didn't derail another one. We were disappointed that another fellow came instead. And so we called the attending and said, can you just tell your fellow to tell the family that they don't need to do this test and we need to just stop now. And then when he, he acknowledged that to us, but then when he talked to this, this fellow, all he wanted to do was quiz them about the cell receptors. And we wound up basically saying, just sit in the corner and don't say anything. Your attending is going to come and talk to them later. And we just want you to not cause any harm. But it was just striking that for the attending oncologists, being able to communicate about the fact that this patient was dying was just not a part of what was important for training this fellow. Knowing about what was on, the cell receptors were and what might impact them, even though it would have absolutely no clinical outcome, is what really mattered for training. So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of people who have written about this problem, but I, I do think it's really ingrained in the culture and in what we valorize, especially in the U.S. I hope naively that maybe it's a little better in the U.K., but in the U.S., you know, where we focus so much on specialists, where even primary care is disvalued. I think this is very deeply ingrained in the culture, and I think changing it is going to require fundamental radical changes in the way in which people are paid for what they do and the way in which we uh, value and measure quality so that those things, which are in fact critical to good medical care, wind up becoming more valorized. I'd like to say that it was all much better in the UK, but David, you told me once, no, no one, no one medical, seen one medical school, no one medical school. And I think it's C1 physician, no one physician, C1 clinician, no one clinician. We just, um, Alyssa, you said it takes vulnerability. Do you think it also takes courage? It took me a long while to find the words to use to my peers to reveal to myself and to them what I thought humanities could bring to a profession that I love and care about. You know, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, vulnerability requires courage because you have to be, you have to be prepared to admit that you need help or that you need to learn something new. You have to be willing to acknowledge that you don't necessarily have every skill that is required to be an excellent physician, an excellent nurse, an excellent scientist. You have to have the courage to say, hey, I wanna learn something more about this issue so that I can improve my skills. We offer a great deal of communication training at Stanford specifically for faculty. And I think that this is the other issue is that, you know, I received some communication training in medical school, which at the time was considered quite revolutionary. And yet what happened is as I, you know, and I had been a clinical ethicist and been part of many very difficult conversations before I went to medical school, got some additional training. And then as I went into residency and additional training, you'd see like, this does not trickle up. This is not going to make it into the attending level if you only train it in medical school. So I think there's also this flawed idea that the people who really need to be trained differently are, are the students, but it is actually that we need the vulnerability and the courage of people like us who are attending clinicians to say, gosh, you know, I don't feel like that conversation with the family went so well. I wonder if I could have done something different. How could I find that out? And that fundamentally requires, I believe, courage and vulnerability. I think those are together. 
It strikes me those are two words that are not very common in medical training, courage and vulnerability. We need a courage and vulnerability revolution in medicine is what we need. And that really comes as part of that culture change that David is talking about. You know, deeply ingrained in the culture of medicine is I must be right, I must be strong. You know, William Osler's idea of equanimity, of the imperturbability of physicians, there's a place for it, but it's not supposed to be all the time. And I think that that's something that we continue to struggle with is there are some really great ideas about what it is that patients do or do not need from their physicians. And we need to continually be re-examining that as opposed to just sticking with it and saying, well, this is how I was trained and that's how I'm going to train you. And look, you're going to be just fine because we are not fine. David, I'm very struck that you also do something quite unique, which is that you bridge that gap between really hardcore research in the philosophy of ethics and the meaning of words and the delivery of care and and the practical experience of doing it. Because so often, I call it the primacy of the p-value. If you don't attach a p-value to something, how can it possibly be true? None of us believe that, I think, in this conversation. But also pointing towards research that other people find credible as well as pointing towards life experience is a hard thing to do. So how do you find that journey and how do you do that? Yeah, I actually think that's critically important. For uh, I th- One of the things that I do like about working with physicians is that they are attentive to evidence. And so if you give them good, strong evidence, they will usually listen to that and be moved by that. And so it helps if it also resonates with their experience. But I, I've been very impressed over the years about how different kinds of evidence move physician positions quite dramatically in a way that's almost like in philosophy, that just never happens. The sides were drawn, you know, between Plato and Aristotle a couple of thousand years ago, and you're either on one side. When you're interviewing somebody in philosophy, you really only have to say Plato, Aristotle, and you're pretty much done with the interview. But um, but the, uh, uh, but so, so I, I do like that about physicians. I have things go back and forth all the time. I was in uh, ICU rounds one day. We had a patient with cholangitis who'd gotten sick enough to go to the ICU, who'd been recently diagnosed with cholangiocarcinoma, but had been a very recent diagnosis. So I asked, do we know what the patient's goals of care are? And one of the surgeons in the room said, oh, it's too early for that. It's still treatable. I remember thinking, well, yeah, it is still treatable. And I kind of understand what he means. We don't know if it's metastasized yet, but still at the time of diagnosis, the five-year survival rate is about 8%. And I remember thinking, I bet nobody in the world other than clinicians would say treatable is compatible with an 8% chance of survival. So we decided to do a study where we looked at like the word treatable and what it means and what do clinicians think it means versus what patients think it means. And so we interviewed patients and physicians, we gave scenarios, And it was actually very powerful because um, we found almost complete dichotomy. The oncologists that we interviewed were the most extreme because for them, you would never say treatable for a curable condition. Uh, So treatable for oncologists means disease-directed therapy for an incurable condition. So for them, it's almost semantic rather than pragmatic that they think it's part of the meaning of treatable, that you're incurable. But across the board, clinicians really think that what it means is that there's some particular clinical goal, that there's something for them to do that's going to achieve some goal, but by itself tells you absolutely nothing about the patient's prognosis um, or, or, or how likely they are to survive. Whereas for patients, overwhelmingly, they think you're telling them good news. And so there was this huge disconnect that explains a lot of things that we can see in the data. And uh, and one of the things that was nice about this, it also fits really well within a, fr- a framing from uh, linguistics and in particular, and philosophy of language, and particular work of uh, a British philosopher named, named Paul Grice. And so it really is this fact that when people are listening to things, there's an inferential pattern that goes on in communication that drives things. And given the disparate backgrounds between patients and physicians, we can see how those inferences are going awry when they hear certain kinds of, of words like treatable and other parts of the phrasicon that clinicians commonly use, thinking they're using ordinary language, but using it in a way that people don't understand. Uh, we're doing a study now of hedge language, both looking at transcripts from actual conversations, goals of care conversations, and then now we're just starting to launch doing, again, similar hypoth- hypotheticals 
of the use of it and see how it leads to different inferential patterns between patients and physicians. But anyway, but, but when we present that data to physicians, they usually find it quite compelling. The thing that's hard is their next question is, this sounds great. How are you going to fix this? And that's a lot harder. <laughs> I have this piece of paper that I made my very first job as a clinical ethics assistant when I was at Cedar sinai We still had paper charts and I'd be like deciphering physician scribbles. I had this piece of paper that I would make every day of every word I found in a chart that I just had no idea what it meant. And I found it after I had graduated from medical school. It had been in a folder. And of course, it's it's all very common words like what's a ventilator? What does pressure support mean? What is a presser? What does a soft pressure mean? I think that very often clinicians don't realize that you've you've learned a foreign language. And we talk about, oh, you need to use accessible language, we need to use simple language so that you know, non-medical language, avoid jargon. And it's so much easier to say that and to tell someone, oh, avoid using jargon. But as David's mentioned, there are words that become so ingrained in the way that clinicians communicate with each other and they bleed over into these conversations with patients. And because of our social standing and because of the differences that each patient brings, many patients are not gonna feel comfortable telling you that they don't know what you're talking about or they don't know what you mean, or they try to ask a clarifying question and you see that it just go right over the clinician's head because they're like, well, you know, I already said that. I've told them five times. And I'm like, well, just because you said it doesn't mean that they understood anything you said. And so, you know, I really feel like clinically we see this working out in, in the type of work that David's doing. And I think it's really helped us to in our consults, when we hear clinicians use words, we're in a position as ethics consultants, when we're in those meetings, we're in a position to play dumb in a way that a, that a patient may not feel comfortable. And so sometimes I know what the clinician's trying to say, but the patient clearly doesn't understand. And so we're in the position to say, gosh, you know, you said that this tumor is treatable. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that like, you're going to survive? Does that mean you're, you need some medication that's going to last so long. So we're able to, to use that in a way to try to move the needle in a specific conversation for someone who's experiencing critical illness. Yeah, I would add one other wrinkle to this, which is that sometimes it's not just that the patients don't know how to ask the right questions. It's that they think they've understood because they're using common language. The patients have plugged in a set of inferences. And that's what our data really shows is that they both think they understand each other. When I first started thinking about hedge language, I was in a conversation with a patient where the patient was pretty sick, uh, not futile, but the probably time to start thinking about goals of care and maybe go switching to comfort care. And so the physician was trying to, the attending was trying to say that maybe we should be considering going to comfort care to someone and said the, the semantics, the literal meaning was fine. They said, your father is really sick. Uh, he may not survive this hospitalization. Um, we, we, you know, we, we can't be sure about exactly how long he's going to live. Uh, I know nobody has a crystal ball, but we, uh, but we're concerned that he may not have survived this hospitalization. And we think maybe we should at least bring up and think about whether it might be time to shift the goals of care to focusing on comfort. And then the patient's son said, okay, I hear what you're saying. Dad's really sick and he may not survive this. So we should keep going and, and seeing how things go. And and hopefully he'll get and see if there's a chance that he's going to get better. And they both thought they were on the same page, but I suspected that the hedge language that the clinician had used led the things to go wrong. And so I said, when you said there's uncertainty and nobody has a crystal ball and there's still a chance, um, did you mean it as a chance like flip a coin or did you mean a chance like a lottery ticket? And then she said, oh, I mean like a lottery ticket and nothing is ever certain in life, but it's really bad. And he's almost very highly unlikely to survive. And then the patient goes, oh, I thought you were telling me good news. Yes, my dad is really sick and he may not survive, but good news, there's still a chance he's going to get better. And she thought he was letting him know that he's going to die here. And um, and so there was a complete misconnect there that they missed and didn't see. Um, and so that's why it's so important to explore exactly how different people interpret these different aspects of common phraseology. And for me, one nice thing about being an outsider is, I mean, Alyssa talked about playing dumb. There's certainly times I do that, but there are also a lot of times when I really am dumb. Like I, after a while hearing... <laughs> 
palm palm crit people say, um, oh, his lungs are really stiff. I finally said, what what does that even mean? I mean, I have a stiff back in the morning. That doesn't sound that serious. Is it like that? And I had to have somebody explain. I mean, that metaphor makes like I thought I didn't know lungs were floppy in the first place. So um, so I needed somebody to really explain the metaphor. And that helped me so that when they were saying it to, to them, say, you have to think of the lungs as this sort of dynamic thing, like a set of springs. And you know how when springs, anyway, so I had to really elaborate their metaphor that they thought was so helpful but was completely opaque to me and most patients so my dad yeah my my dad died of lung cancer and i had that conversation we were in that conversation and he told me and my oncologist said it's treatable or we were down all together and um and i had to say to him dad treatable doesn't mean curable this is going to be your final illness this is going to be something that that ultimately will end your life what they're saying is they can delay that end of your life but they're not going to make that cancer completely go away oh son he said um so in terms of then delivering ethics and being right about ethics and knowing that your ethics is ethical and correct there's something I've never got my head around, even though I try and do it. How do you know that you're ethical? How do you get your standards and work with them and test them? I'm going to let David, the philosopher, go first. <laughs> oh, I was going to let the physician who has to ask that question go first. <laughs> I mean, to me, so for, I'll just say I hate talking about it that way. So every time somebody asks that question, gosh, is this ethical or unethical? I cringe a little bit, uh, partly because I come from a field where in a way it's not interesting unless there's a fight or a debate about what the right thing to do is. Uh, in clinical ethics, sometimes it really is pretty clear or you know, it's decided because the law says this, or we have policies that say that, or there are traditions. But most of the toughest situations are where there actually are a range of different positions that can be held. By inclination, as, a, as trained as a philosopher, my, my initial inclination is that almost every ethical situation is to try and think, well, let's see what different perspectives there are that you could bring to bear and how you would make those arguments and then start to see whether you can reach consensus out of that. So I, I think of it that way. Rather, than, I definitely don't like to think of ourselves as like the ethics police saying, this is bad, this is good, this is unethical, this is good practice. I will say that's easier in the clinical ethics space. In the research ethics space, I've, uh, you know, I do a lot of work now in my role, in my associate dean role, dealing with issues of compliance. There, there's a clear answer, and it's just, you can't do this. There, it's not really even about ethics. It's about the regulations. The areas where it's easier to say, this is bad or this is good, are actually in compliance, not in ethics. <laughs> There's a there's an app called Clubhouse that's audio only, and I I host something called the Ethics Club with a few other ethics scholars. And our uh, what's what's emerged as our kind of theme is there are no rainbows or butterflies in ethics, and it's because it's oftentimes that the answers are not necessarily satisfying. Oftentimes, people bring ethics consults from a place of moral distress. You're bringing them from a place of trying to determine what is a morally courageous response to an awful, intractable situation. Because oftentimes what we wish the solution was is make the disease go away, make the patient happy, make the family happy, heal this wound that is taking that I am witnessing, that I am bearing witness to. Because much of what we deal with in medicine is trauma. It is traumatic to be a clinician. We are sitting in people's pain and suffering. And oftentimes from that emerge these incredibly difficult and challenging conversations. And so I, I agree with David, you know, I oftentimes will say when someone calls, I can't promise I'm gonna fix this problem for you, but I can help you untangle it. Let's see if we can take this big ginormous problem that seems to have no beginning and no end. And let's see if we can separate it out. Can we untangle that together? Because it may be that there's certain aspects of it that are easy. I can give someone some advice about how to have a conversation. I can coach them through how to deliver bad news. I can help them recognize what are the legal aspects of this case that you may want to think about. And in the end, we say, listen, we're here to advise you. We're not here to tell you what to do. I get a lot of calls from trainees 
oftentimes this is something that a trainee is asked to call us, oh, just, just get the ethics consult. You know, I find that I'm talking with, you know, my former self, I'm talking with someone who's a junior trainee and they need to know it's gonna be okay. And that you're going to be left with scars from some of these, these conversations and some of these consultations. They will form you as a clinician and that's not a bad thing. Each of these experiences is something that influences who you become as an ethical, moral practicing physician. Yeah, I suspect there's some slight differences in the way we approach things too. I think a lot of what I do is just help clarify things that are kind of muddy in the way people are thinking about them. And then rather than ethical and unethical, I think of it as like, how defensible is your position? And a lot of times it is just getting very clear about things. So there's a lot of moral distress because something feels wrong. And then when you get clarity on the issue and they really understand it fully, then they sort of have insight themselves about what to do. And they feel much better about it and have less moral distress because it makes sense. Like that happens all the time where, I mean, and it goes both ways. We have cases where the teams feel like it's time to stop and they, they they don't like the burden benefit ratio and they feel like they're doing something bad because the burden benefit ratio isn't positive. But then we kind of go through the patient's values and how we know about them and what the family's values are and how those are articulated. And then suddenly it's like, okay, that makes sense. So this is my value judgment that I wouldn't want that for me, but reasonable people can disagree about where they draw the line. And we have pretty compelling evidence that where they would draw the line is not where the patient would draw the line, then that's okay. And that sometimes alleviates some of that moral distress. In other cases, it may go the other way where people are like, you know, well, the family wants to keep going, but we have compelling evidence that it's not in keeping with the patient's values. Well, then we can sometimes step in and do that role for the family to make sure they understand that their role is to not do what they think is best, but to try to to the best of their ability, knowing that it's impossible because there's empirical data showing how poor we are at doing this, but to the best of their ability, rendering a substituted judgment. In the pediatric side of things, we are more often in the position where the family reaches the decision and reaches the understanding that their child has suffered enough and that there's enough clarity that the outcome will not be what they'd hoped for. It is, I think, more common at the pediatric side for families to reach that before the clinicians, and the clinicians have a much harder time with that. The clinicians feel fine with it if they've figured it out and then the family figures it out. So that's like a whole other kind of uniqueness that we see in our work across both a major tertiary care adult hospital and a major tertiary care pediatric hospital. I have a question about, before Ian helps us turn to the questions from the audience, about each of your perceptions in the acceptance of clinical ethics consults. So I know, David, that you've been in rooms with philosophers and ethicists and doctors where there's just like, talk about a language barrier, right? I mean, just complete lack of understanding between those two. So I'm interested in you talking about sort of your experience and acceptance um, where you are. And then Alyssa, just your experience as a clinician and how that's translated into acceptance of your uh, input as a clinical ethicist. Yeah, that's a really interesting and hard question because it's like raises one of the questions is what's the right number of ethics consults that you want? Is more better or is more worse? But I would say, I think in the end for most clinicians, just like they're responsive to data, they're also very responsive to experience. And so when clinicians call ethics consults and have success and feel like we were of that tremendous value to them, then they're more likely to start calling. I mean, I just saw that pattern from very early on when I was at Stanford. I would have a success and then all of a sudden that same service would be calling us all the time. So over time, we just keep building it up. I also think it helps a little bit. The fact that we do the research that we do and publish what we publish gives us some academic credibility that I think also is important at an academic medical center like Stanford. Um, So the combination of all those two things has been pretty dramatic. When I first came to Stanford, I think they were doing, you know, maybe 50 consults a year. I think a couple of years before it was 35, it had increased to about 50 a year when I first came to the adult hospital. In 2020, it was over 500 consults that were conducted that year. Um, so it's it's increased by an order of 10. It's required a lot more staffing. You know, we had a third of an FTE when I started, and now we've got 
you know, about not quite 10 times as much, but we're, we're getting there. It's just grown and grown, but you had to do that. You have to prove your value. It really helps to do rounds every week with them. So we did interdisciplinary rounds. We still do them every week. And we've done that for 20 years, uh, maybe longer. Some of it predates me. It's become part of the training in the intensive care units that the fellows all get to interact with ethics on a weekly basis. And it's just part of helping to frame how they think about things. And and I will say, this is just anecdotal, so it's not really strong evidence, but we did see when we started shifting rounds from the ICU units that we were part of to a new unit, DNRs went up, um, a whole bunch of things in clinical care, length of stay went down. So there were a whole lot of other things that wound up happening as a result of our just being constantly present and just building those relationships. Our consultants all know all the attendings. They all know us very well. They trust us. You know, and that also means having for people like me who are not physicians, it's meant learning a lot of medicine over the years. You know, I was lucky when I was at Penn that the people there were nice enough to let me shadow like the ICU units along with the trainees and learn some medicine, though I continue to learn. And Alyssa talked about looking words up that they don't understand. I still do that. But, you know, you have to learn how to read a chart. And when people talk in the acronym laced way that people talk all the time in medical settings, you can you have to learn how to do that. Uh, we have a fellowship program and our PhD philosophers who go through that program, the whole, almost the whole first year is spent just learning enough medicine to know what's going on and have a sense of like, okay, when you hear this, not just know what those words mean, but this, these words just said mean that this patient's probably not going to survive. Whereas these words mean this patient's probably going to get better. When I took over our pediatric ethics service about five years ago, we were in the same boat. I analyzed the data from the three previous years before I came and we'd had about 30 consults a year. And in the last five years, it's really ballooned and we're, we're up to a hundred consults a year at this point. And again, not that number of consults is a metric of success, but I do think it is a metric of an unmet need. You know, I think that you need to be available. You need to answer the phone when people call and they need to get quality advice from you. Um, You need to be honest about what you can and can't deliver. It's through that real deep honesty and expertise that you get really high quality consultation service. It's important to me that clinicians who are in extremis about some morally distressing ethical conundrum, that they understand that there are resources available, they do not need to figure it out for themselves, that we are there to help support not only their education, but also their thought process. And I really hope that with each consultation that we do, that we're helping to enhance that clinician's ability to handle that same issue in the future. And I think we see that at the adult hospital as well, where I also consult, is that those 500 consults are not easy. We seem to have really trained the faculty to deal with the easiest issues themselves. And so the cases that we're getting are increasingly complex. They're increasingly ethically complex, which is exciting for us because we find them very, we find them more interesting. But those are, I think, things that really, that really matter. I think as a, as an anesthesiologist, what's been fascinating to me is watching the increased number of consultations that we get from anesthesiologists and surgeons and operating room nurses. Because previously, you know, that's a real bat cave. People don't, we don't, that's a secret place. There's not a lot of interaction oftentimes outside. And so essentially having an embedded ethicist in our operating rooms, I think has made a significant impact in the kinds of difficulties that clinicians in that space are dealing with that are just, they're just different than those that we see either in the clinics or out on the floors. We've spoken a lot. I'm going to try and bring in a couple of questions that we've had around the benefits of providing evidence to support a dialogue around the value of humanities and ethics. While simultaneously, I think, I I also feel that somehow these things should have intrinsic value, that it should be so easy to display. Because to be a good clinician or to provide good support to clinical care or support clinicians providing good care or to create a meaningful dialogue between philosophy and ethics and medicine in a way that changes both worlds, I mean, how could that be anything other than fantastically important? 
And one of the questioners has been putting in comments around how do we stand on evidence-based medicine and why is medicine so science-focused rather than focusing on the social science nature of, of our world? And why does needing to be scientific seem to trump everything that we do? I, I think on this panel, we're going to agree that that it's sad that medicine's got itself in that space. Can philosophy of good clinical care help us explain to clinicians from a fundamental basis why we're just in the wrong place in so much of what we do by focusing on p-value and evidence above all else? I actually think even that is possible, but it means you have to have people with the right expertise. And I'll just say it's very challenging. Um, I'll just give an example of that. Uh, when H1N1 was uh, sort of flying around, we, there was a shortage of vaccine and we had to do the allocation. Uh, we had a, something We had something called the Senior Physicians Disaster Management Committee. It was made up of leadership of both hospitals to talk about how we were going to allocate it. And literally the first 15 minutes of this 90-minute conversation were spent me doing a very, very short version of Rawls' theory of justice and the difference principle and prioritarianism and utilitarianism. And we agreed that from then on, every idea about how to allocate had to appeal to one or the other of those two, essentially turning them into principles and how they would fit one or the other of both of them as we sort of constructed how we were going to do that. Something similar happened with the allocation of vaccines and many other allocation issues around COVID. The only difference there was uh, that was opaque locally at a lot of places because the people sort of constructing the principles and the frameworks who were using that were relying on ethicists who were working on that nationally who did that. And so they couldn't see the work behind it. But I think the more that they can actually hear, like, this is not just stuff we're pulling. I mean, it may, it seems sometimes when you talk to an ethicist and they say, well, you should think of it this way. And here's the trade-offs or here's the two principles that we're trading off here. It seems like these things just come out of thin air. Whereas if you can actually take the time to really, I mean, it's, you know, we, we, for the vaccine allocation committee, they gave me a whole hour to really explain the theories behind the principles. They were all familiar with the principles because the national academies were using similar ones to the ones that the CDC was using. And they, and so they were used to seeing these sets of principles, but I sort of explained where they were derived from theoretically. And that really starts to say, okay, there's like a whole field there that I, that I get that there's a bunch of smart people who've spent a lot of time spending their lives thinking about that stands behind this. Anyway, but you have to do the work to really demonstrate that because what's too often happens in ethics is they just get the tip of the iceberg. And that tip of the iceberg is not really that impressive. And you have to show them the whole thing that's underneath that's really scaffolding everything. And when you can do that, of course, time's a crunch and it's hard to get them to spend the time listening, but even showing them glimpses of that and getting them a sense of the fact that there's that iceberg underneath it, then they're more likely to say, okay, this tip of the iceberg, that's fine. We trust that you know what's underneath that and, and are going to take care of that. You have so just helped me rewrite my next ethics lecture. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think the pandemic has really put into perspective in a unique way, we know that burnout and moral distress are related to each other. And I think what we're seeing with the mass exodus of nurses, not only in the US, but also in the UK, that if we do not have ways to address moral distress at the bedside, we're still in the midst of an over year long trauma as healthcare providers. And so I think this is a unique time as ethicists. I think that as ethicists across our own country, certainly we've heard the burdens on ethicists to try to help deal with these major issues about allocation. You know, we've been pushed in unique ways in the last year as well. And I think that by really being clear on addressing moral distress as a fundamental part of addressing burnout and staff retention is a unique way to demonstrate value as ethics services that I don't think has been appreciated previous to this. Which beautifully answers one of the questions before I even had to ask it, where um, one of our questions was talking about how we sit in people's, reflecting on your comment about sitting in people's pain and suffering, which I think is a very powerful um, way of describing it. What about the considering the well-being of the clinician? I can't help but completely agree. I mean, I would say that I'm suffering from burnout from the last 15 months. 
not just from things that are seen, but from the continual avalanche of change that the whole thing has brought, um, the continual reorganization of services and the reinvention and the and the overwhelming need and having to meet it in a new landscape in a new way that changes all the time. This sense of the flood of need um, and this vague sense of we have no place to go to say that we are or aren't coping or what it feels like to do is incredibly challenging. I try and say these words because then my colleagues say back, yes, I feel like that too. I'm glad I'm not alone. But it also takes a bit of courage to stand up there and say, I'm not coping. That resonates with me very, very personally. Thank you for sharing that. It, it does. It takes bravery and it takes vulnerability for clinicians who, you know, people come to us in their times of greatest need, truly life or death situations. And I think that we've seen through the pandemic that this ongoing trauma, it, it needs an answer. And I, I certainly don't think that ethics consultation alone is going to be the answer to that deep pain. But I think that the work that David and I do and, and the work that you two do can make a difference. And I think that, you know, when we think about humanities in the, in the broadest sense, ethics, literature, communication, music, you know, there's so many different ways that I think we can use to process this trauma with clinicians, with patients in ways that, that can be healing. I became a physician because I wanted a meaningful life. And I don't want to lose that because of a virus. <laughs> and I think that all of us want to be able to keep getting that meaningful life and, and enjoying and supporting the meaningful lives of others. I will say one thing that the virus has done that I think, not just the virus, but also the Black Lives Matter movement and other things that have been happening in the U.S. together, is I would say, uh, it's it's kind of interesting to me. So I started teaching about, I don't know, five or six years ago, an undergraduate course on justice and allocation in healthcare. And although obviously it was partly motivated by what was going on with Obamacare and other things like that, and that was a the macro issues were part of it. The reason why I taught the course was because there are all these meso level issues of justice and allocation that I was dealing with in the hospital. And, you know, they bring me in on a lot of policy level things in the hospital systems. And so I was dealing with a lot of these issues and there was surprisingly little literature on many of these topics in ethics. And I, and I really wanted to teach this course and really think about this and reflect on it and help me in my, and sometimes my teaching informs my, my work and my policy work in that case to help figure some of these things out. COVID has changed all of that. I mean, so it, from a policy perspective, I feel like I I spent, a, it's better, a little better now, although we've got a new committee right now that's meeting in a little while, in a couple of hours, but it's just been one thing after another of allocation issues. And the result is like, if you think about things like crisis standard of care and how to allocate ventilators in a shortage, the total number of ethics articles written about that topic before COVID was, you know, a dozen pieces. Um, uh, it was very easy to master all that literature. The leading literature was mostly outgrowths of the National Academy of Medicine, which was quite good for its time, but that was it. But now it's like, I, I just my journal alone, I, I'm the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Biotics. We probably get, I don't know, we get like 10, it feels like we get a whole bunch of articles on this topic every month still. And there've been now hundreds of pieces on this written in the last year. So for a lot of the meso-level justice issues that people have been talking about and issues around equity and injustice that has always had some ethics literature in there, I would say if you look back on uh, many of those issues about uh, social determinants of health and ethics, all these things, 90% of the ethics literature has been written in the last 12 months in topic after topic. And so I think this is going to resonate for years from now in a fundamental change in our field. I'm excited about it because it's something that I was interested in before COVID. And now, and I got to put those interests into practice for the past year. I really think it's it's really focusing on justice and allocation issues and equity issues. I think those are going to be here to stay um, as a front and center in bioethics instead of something that was really relatively small as a part of what people were dealing with. So I'm going to finish because we're nearly at the end just with a question for each of you, which is how do the humanities resource you as individuals to do what you do better or encourage you or, or drive you forward in your thinking? 
I read a lot outside of medicine. I think that's something that's, and not just academic work, but also, you know, popular work. I really enjoy brain pickings, which is something that Maria Popova puts together. It's a beautiful collection of literature that she sort of synthesizes into these beautiful blog pieces and they're, they're long form. And that's something that's been a resource for me over the past several years and certainly during the pandemic to say, gosh, I really need a diet from the news right now because work is hard enough and engaging with some of the challenging things that have been going on in our world, you kind of need to take a break from it. So I think that by being very deliberate about how I spend my time out of the hospital makes an incredible difference for me of bringing my best self to the work that I do in the hospital. Additionally, as you mentioned, I'm an amateur musician. I love to sing. I love to play guitar. So that's a big part of one of the ways that I take care of myself, but it's also something my family really enjoys. And since the pandemic started, I've actually been part of a a group on Twitter where we try to just post two minute songs and we try to be really quick about it. We really try to focus not on perfection, but just on just being vulnerable and sharing that work. And I think it's been our own group's wellness activity, one might say. And I think we share a little bit of joy with others. For me, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, I feel like in all of my work, I never feel like I'm alone because I always feel like both these great texts and great philosophers and great theorists of uh, and literature is with me, as well as all the contemporary literature that's being produced. So I feel like all these voices are always with me. So I don't feel like whenever I'm going into a consult, I really feel like, and it's in some ways, my biggest strength as an ethicist, because I'm not a clinician, is that I'm a conduit to contemporary literature. I'm a conduit to historical literature and all these great texts that I've had the privilege to also be able to teach over the course of many, many years. And so I feel like they're with me whenever I'm in the room. So it makes me feel less alone. And it also sort of cloaks me a little bit because it's when I'm speaking, I I really feel, I often can really say it's like, well, the literature is split on this topic with some people thinking this, or there was a debate five years ago and literature was split. This is what the consensus is now about how to look at this issue. And then here's how this is all derived from these classic texts that this all is uh, the working out of. So I feel like I've got all of that with me all the time when I'm having these conversations. That that really helps me a lot because I really feel like I'm cloaked in that background and I've, and I've got these people who are always with me when I'm interacting with clinicians and patients. Thank you. And for being one of the first people who makes me want to go away and read Aristotle. That is, that is t- reading Aristotle is time well spent. So I'm going to say that that's got to be the perfect place to finish this uh, i'm going to say thank you so much to everybody who joined in and listened and to david and Alyssa for just sharing such wisdom and such practical wisdom and lauren for joining me and hosting and asking the questions and helping and david for running this bye everybody bye thanks for having us that was our fifth conversation about arts humanities and health with professor david magnus and dr Alyssa bergart thank you for listening Join us for the next episode, which will be the final episode of our first season. For the season finale, we're very excited to be joined by Professor Rita Sharon from Columbia University. Dita and Ian will talk with Rita about her pioneering work in narrative medicine, as well as the pivotal role of aesthetics and aesthetic experiences in the practices of narrative medicine. For more details, look us up on Twitter at ConvoArtsHealth, or you can go to our website, www.research.kent.com ac.uk forward slash medical humanities this episode of conversations about arts humanities and health was produced by me david brown until next time